So we are, we are in a series called Answers, Questioning the Bible. And for months, we asked you all, what questions do you have about theology, about the Bible, about culture, about anything connected to God and His Word? And we got roughly 50-ish questions, a lot of questions. Only 12 sermons in this series, though, and so we did have to smash questions together. We had to leave some questions for podcasts to come in the future, and we'll let you know when those release. But tonight, we're going to talk about, in general, the umbrella of sanctification. Sanctification. So here's the four questions that God asked that are, are prompting this sermon. Ready? The first one's a paragraph, and it's, it's a great question. What does it look like to live by faith? In other words, we know we're not saved by works, and yet when we think of living the Christian life, we think of fighting sin and trying to obey God daily. Where does faith come into our everyday lives? What does it look like in the day-to-day? What do we actually do and think about to make sure we're living by faith? Now, I know that's one question, but you actually snuck in five, whoever you are, so good job on that, appearing to be one question but actually being five. But we're going to talk about that tonight. Here's another question that came in. How should we think about daily Bible reading? How should we think about daily Bible reading? Here's another one. How does one, believed to be a Christian in parenthesis, release themselves from a dark past or sinful impurity if they were too young to know any better as a child? But as they mature, it still plagues them into adulthood. What a great question. And then lastly, how can you resist a temptation that has developed into a natural behavior. How can you resist the temptation that has developed into a natural behavior? In other words, a habit. How do you resist a temptation that is now a habit? Okay, so let's jump in. I want to define the terms first. So the term that is the umbrella here for these questions is sanctification. And here is a good definition. It refers broadly to the concept of being set apart as sacred. Okay, so Christians are set apart by God through Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit, and we are separate from other people who do not know Jesus. We are different. In fact, we are so different that we are alive and they are dead. We are in the kingdom of light, they are in the kingdom of darkness. We serve the Lord Jesus Christ, the scripture says they serve the devil. Whether willingly or unwillingly, whether consciously or unconsciously, all non-Christians serve the devil. And there are many other contrasts that uh, the Bible makes between Christians and non-Christians. We are set apart for God's honor, glory, and use in the world. That's you. If you're a Christian, you belong to God, and you exist right now to glorify Him, to honor Him, to expand His kingdom, and to live for Him, okay? That's general. So, it refers broadly to the concept of being set apart as sacred. Sanctification also, and this is the one we're talking about here, also refers to the process of gradual purification from sin and progressive spiritual growth that should mark the life of the believer. This doctrine of sanctification draws on New Testament passages that emphasize a move toward holy and righteous living that characterizes following Christ in faith. I know you love long definitions, so there you go. So what what about the Scriptures? Where would we find sanctification, or we could say progressive growth in godliness in the Scriptures? Well, here's a good one. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 to 3, Paul is admonishing the Thessalonians, uh, the, the Thessalonian church here, and he says, finally, brothers, he's wrapping up his letter, finally, brothers, it's actually brothers and sisters, that word does not demand maleness, uh, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that you received from us, I'm sorry, that as you received from us, and when you go to verse 1 in this letter, uh, it starts Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Okay, so Paul is the author, but he's with Silvanus and Timothy. Perhaps one of them are even penning the letter. Uh, and so that's the us. He says that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. The metaphor of walking in the Bible is living the Christian life. 
We walk with God, we walk out our faith, we take action based on faith. How you ought to walk and walk in such a way that pleases God, just as you are doing. So Paul commends the church. He says, as you're doing this, I want you to keep doing it. Why? That you may do so more and more, for you know what instruction we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Okay, so Paul, when he was there at the church, he gave them a lot of instruction, not yet canonized as a letter, so this was verbal instruction from Paul. And then he says, for this is the will of God, your, there's our word, sanctification. So a lot of us wanna know what's God's will for my life, and here is a very clear, concrete aspect of God's will. So if you wanna say to yourself, man, what is God's will for my life? You have to go no further than 1 Thessalonians 4.3. God wants you to be sanctified or to grow in godliness. He wants you to progress from where you are right now. Every one of us are on a spectrum of godliness. You could say it like this. Every one of us are on a spectrum of Jesus likeness and wherever you are is not where you should remain. Where you are is where you are right now, and it is what it is, and God has you there. But God doesn't want you to stay there. What happens to water that kind of stays stagnant? Does anyone know? It stinks, okay, anyone else? It does stink. What does it fill up with? Algae, Algae. yes, that's what I was thinking. Now, as a, as a young foolish kid, uh, I lived uh, right in a, a mining town with uh, literal cracks in the earth that would smoke. Uh, and we would ride our pedal bikes back there and our dirt bikes, and it was a lot of fun. And there was at the bottom of one of these terraced hills that we would ride our bike down, the sign said, Danger Acid Pond. So what do I do? I'm like, that would be fun to swim in. And I, I did. I swam in that thing, and thankfully I didn't like drink the water and spit it out like kids like to do. But if you wonder why are you so strange, Chris, now you know. In my childhood, I would swim in acid ponds, okay? Now, thankfully, it wasn't acid that like ate my skin away and I didn't melt into a skeleton instantly. Uh, I don't even remember getting burned by it, but what I'm thinking, it, it was runoff from the coal mines and, and it comes up from the earth and you know the earth was on, on fire underneath these mines. But, but it was like ugly, sulfuric, brown, rust-looking water. Not what you would want to drink, not Caribbean clear, that's for sure. Okay? And I've also played in the ponds that are green with algae. You know, they, they stink, they're just, you can't see anything, but you can see green slime kind of growing out of them. And if you ever do step in one of these, it kind of like gets you up to your knees in mud and it's like, that's kind of the noise it makes. But how many of you have gone into fresh flowing water where you can see right through it and see the rocks below, right? So the idea is when you stagnate, you're gonna stink a little bit, okay? What is going on with these lights? Um, you're, you're gonna stink a little bit. You're gonna start to grow algae. You might even become toxic and acidic, okay? So just remember that. God wants you to progress and move forward. He doesn't want you to stay where you are. Now, there are many wrong views about sanctification. Here are three, three. Now remember, what are we talking about? Growth in godliness, growth in Jesus like this. Number one, sanctification can happen in an instant. Okay? Some traditions teach this, that you can have a move of God on you and you instantly are propelled into this deeper walk with God and you struggled, but over on this side of the experience, you, you no longer struggle. Okay? That is false. The Bible does not teach that. Okay. The, some traditions will teach even that there is some kind of hard thing that comes into your life, some kind of crisis perhaps, and prior to the crisis, you were living a, a, a non-biblical life, but you claimed to be a Christian, you, you maybe said the sinner's prayer, you were in some sense walking with Jesus, but some crisis, some terrible thing happens in your life, you come through the crisis, and on the other side, you have grown, and you are propelled into a deeper walk with God. Some traditions even call this the, the second baptism of the Holy Spirit. How many of you have heard of the second baptism of the Holy Spirit, okay? Eddie's had three or four baptisms in the Holy Spirit. He's, he's a holy man. I think I see fire above your head in the shape of a tongue. That's bizarre, bro. Okay, so the, the, the tongues of fire is an Acts 2 reference. It's a joke. Just let it, let it land there. 
The second baptism of the Holy Spirit is often thought that when you are born again, you are first baptized by the Holy Spirit into Jesus, and now you're in His body, but you need a second baptism which will propel you into a deeper walk with Jesus. That is not biblical. Okay, so those are three views that are not biblical. What's the biblical view of sanctification? It's called progressive. Not in the political sense, but in the moving forward towards Jesus' likeness sense. Say progressive. Okay, not the insurance company. Moving toward Jesus' likeness. Okay, here's another verse. Okay, this is an explicit verse here. 1 Timothy 4, 13, and then 15 and 16. Paul is writing to his son in the faith, one of them, Timothy, and he says to Timothy, Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Timothy's a pastor. To exhortation, to teaching. Practice these things. Okay, so so note that practice there. Highlight that. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. Notice the persist, okay? Immerse yourself, practice, persist. Those are all action words. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, this is a little different than than, uh, uh, an exhortation for the average Christian. This is specifically to a pastor who is leading a church. However, I want you to see that Paul's attitude towards Timothy is, Timothy, if you immerse yourself, if you practice, and if you persist, you will progress. And the same goes for us. We are to progress. So wherever you are today, that's great. I'm thankful to God for that. But you do not need to stay there, and you should not stay there. Okay? Next month, perhaps next year into two years, you should be a little different. One of my favorite theologians, uh, a Pittsburgh native, R.C. Sproul, here's what he says about sanctification. Ready? Listen up. Okay? This is brilliant. He says, we're saved by grace alone and justified by faith alone. But having been saved, we don't just wait around to die. Christianity is about spiritual growth as well, and spiritual growth involves effort, the hard work of sanctification. We manifestly don't work for our regeneration. Friends, regeneration is what John 3.3 calls being born again. You must be born again or you will not see the kingdom of heaven. It's what Ezekiel 36 calls being uh, acted on by God in such a way where he takes out your heart of stone and he puts in a heart of flesh, okay? That's regeneration. And so R.C. says, we manifestly don't work for our regeneration or being born again or our justification, the act of God declaring us righteous when we're not righteous, but because we're in Christ, we have His righteousness. Both acts are monergistic. You hear mono in there, one, mono, erg for energy, okay? God working alone, that's monergistic. Accomplished by God alone. Our, okay, now listen to this. Only the Holy Spirit can change our hearts. Only the righteousness of Christ The righteousness of the Son of God, secured by the perfect obedience of Jesus, can secure our right standing before God. Sanctification, now listen up, includes our efforts. We say it is synergistic, meaning two or more working together to accomplish something. So sanctification is synergistic because both God and we are doing something, yet we aren't equal partners. God wills and works in us according to His good pleasure so that we progress in holiness, but as God works in us, we work as well, pursuing Him in prayer, relying on the means of grace, the preached Word, and the sacraments, seeking to be reconciled to those we have offended. Now listen to this, a very important sentence here. There's no shortcuts for sanctification. That's a sad sentence. (laughs) There are no shortcuts for sanctification. It is a process and one that all too often seems overly plodding with progress taking years to discern. What does that mean, taking years to discern? That means sometimes when you look at yourself and you look back at yourself, even over the last couple months, you're like, I haven't moved a bit. But then over years, R.C. is saying, you can look back and say, wow, I have changed. 
but often we do not notice the change. Okay? Uh, how many of you have Google Photos or Apple Photos and all of a sudden you get reminded of years back some event? Right? All of you have that, right? And so I just got reminded of 2017 and my daughter looked like she was, you know, six because she was. <laughs> and so I was like, yo, this is crazy. She looks so different. But in the, in the day to day, she does not look different. But when I look back six years ago, I'm like, you are not that person anymore. And the same applies to us. When we look back at ourselves six years ago, I hope and pray to God that you are different than you were six years ago. Okay? Now, the Christian life is much like, you know, watching Apple stock. Okay? I love Apple stock, but it goes like this, up and down. Uh, uh, here's a better analogy, Bitcoin stock, okay? It's like boom, crash, boom, crash, boom, crash. And that's the Christian life. But you know what always happens if you're genuinely a Christian? You are continuously moving forward. That's what happens. Even if you take a few steps back, eventually you get back on the progress trail. Okay? And then here's an encouragement for you. If you're off the path of godliness, you're not walking with God right now, you know what you can do tonight? You can step back on the path, and guess what? You're back on the path. Like you can make that choice tonight. You don't have to wait for some crazy event or to have a dream or to have God meet you in a vision or to take some magic mushroom and hear his voice. Don't do that, by the way. Okay? You can start tonight by just choosing get on the path. Now, here... Okay, that was R.C. Sproul. Here's where R.C. Sproul got that from, Sec, uh, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, Paul's talking to the Philippian church. He calls them his loved ones. As you have always obeyed, okay, we're talking about obedience here. Now so, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. You were obedient while I was there. Now much more be obedient that I'm not there. And here's his instruction. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why, Paul? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, the salvation being spoken of here is not salvation from the penalty of sin and hell forever. That's taken care of at the cross. And when we have faith in Jesus, we are saved from our sins. We are saved from the penalty of hell. However, sin still has power over you in some sense, doesn't it? And so you're supposed to work against the power of sin in your life, and you are to free yourself from the sin that so easily entangles you. Okay? And we don't make excuses. Like, hey, my parents were really angry, and so I'm just an angry person. No excuse. You need to change. You need to grow, and you can. Okay? Hey, my parents were super blunt and just real and raw, and they didn't care if you liked what they said or not. And so, hey, what do you expect from me? No, you need to grow in gentleness. You need to grow to love people with your words and learn how to build others up with your words, as Ephesians 4 says. And we could go on and on. But listen, you can't make the excuse because of your ethnicity. You know, like Italians are like, hey, Italians are just feisty. They like to fight. Or, or the fighting Irish. Hey, I'm Irish. What do you expect of me? I expect you to grow. I don't care if you're Irish or not. You can have the Notre Dame little guy tattooed on your left chest. You need to grow. Okay? There is such a thing as laser tattoo removal, if that's your identity. Let's get that thing. Let's get a Steeler logo on there instead. You know what I'm saying? For it is, now listen, so that's the workout. It's work out the, the power of sin in your life. But look, here's the encouragement. It's not you by yourself. Look, look at verse 13. It is God who works in you, both to will, that's the choosing mechanism, both to will and to act, that's the doing. So the wanting to do it and the choosing to do it and the acting it out is God in and through you. Now that's mysterious, and we're going to touch on how that applies to faith in a minute. Okay, but just remember, we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, both because it's God who we are sinning against and we don't want to play with God, but also sin is more dangerous than you could ever imagine. Okay? Sin is like a deadly animal waiting to take you and eat you, and you treat it like it's a friendly pet that you need to cuddle and feed and care for. No, you need to kill the sin, like strangle the beast. Okay? And that's what that verse 12 means. 
You kill sin by the Spirit, and God will work through you and in you as you choose to make those types of decisions. Here's another one from Galatians. Paul says to the church at Galatia, I say, walk by the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, and you will not, notice that, pretty emphatic. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Here's what that means. If you are walking in the strength and power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will never lead you to sin, ever. And Jesus was completely full of the Holy Spirit. He had the Holy Spirit without measure. Therefore, he never sinned. And he always relied on the power of the Holy Spirit, not just his own strength as Jesus, as God become man, but he relied on the power of the Holy Spirit to identify with our humanity because we need to rely on the Holy Spirit if we are going to do anything good and spiritually worthwhile or or eternally value. What's the verse? John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branch. Without me, you can do nothing. And so the me there is is the Holy Spirit. It's the third person of the Trinity. Without the Holy Spirit, we can do nothing. We have nothing and we can do nothing of spiritual benefit. Verse 17, for the desires of the flesh, that that is you minus the Holy Spirit. That's the old you unregenerate, okay? For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. One translation says these are at war with each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Here's the good news about the resurrection, friends. When we are resurrected in glory with Jesus, guess where the flesh is? Gone, dead, buried, never to resurrect again. And we long for that day. But until then, we wrestle with the sinful part of us, which is named here as the flesh. Romans 7 calls it indwelling sin. Where is it dwelling? Inside of you. And inside of you, there's this constant war between the Holy Spirit and your sinful nature, and your sinful nature is driving you towards sin, driving you away from Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is doing the exact opposite. Does it ever feel like a war inside of you? Yeah. Well, now you know why. You should memorize this and just quote it to yourself and encourage yourself. This is how it's supposed to be. This is the Christian life. If you were lied to in any kind of theological setting that once you come to Jesus, your life will get better, it will get easier, and it will be this just incline like you were downtown going up to Mount Washington, you were lied to. Sorry for all the Pittsburgh references tonight. It just is what it is. All right, so we need to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. How do you know if you're walking by the flesh? You're sinning. It's as simple as that. The Holy Spirit never leads you to sin, and if you sin, you were walking by your own strength, by the flesh, and you were not walking by the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's the good news. When you sin, 1 John 1, 9 says, someone, come on. If you confess your sin, God is faithful and just, and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's right. And so when we sin, which we will, what do we do? We confess. We confess to one another, as James tells us, and then we confess to God and He will forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. This is the good news that we have in Jesus. All right, R.C. talked about the means of grace, okay? Now, means of grace in this context is means of sustaining grace, not saving grace. What are the means of saving grace? Jesus, person, and work, the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, and then the Holy Spirit applying that work to our hearts. That's the means of saving grace. What's the means of Keeping grace, sanctifying grace, here it is. Here's some of them. This is just the small list. So these are the things you should do, okay? These are action steps you should take. Prayer, Bible reading, confession of sins to one another, constant repentance, forgiveness, both forgiving others and receiving the forgiveness of others. Weekly Sunday worship gatherings, singing, of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, taking of the Lord's Supper if you're a Christian, baptism, practicing evangelism or talking to others about Jesus, reading good books, listening to good sermons, and on and on I could go. These are the means that God uses to keep us in the faith. Like, God does keep us. He keeps His own. We have what's called eternal security, but there are means by which He keeps us. These are the means. And when you separate yourself from the means of sustaining grace, you put yourself in great danger. 
Let me say that again. When you purposefully set yourself apart from and stop practicing the means of sustaining grace, you are putting yourself in danger. Here's what Spurgeon said, Charles Spurgeon, the the prince of preachers. Never neglect the means of grace. God may bless us when we are not in his house, and I don't think Spurgeon means that church buildings are God's house. I just think he means, uh, you know, in your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so when the church gathers, we are worshiping God and we are in his presence in a unique way than if we are scattered or we're hanging out at Starbucks talking uh, over coffee, okay? So we're here worshiping, God is here with us, we are in his presence, and Spurgeon says, never neglect the means of grace. God may bless us when we are not in his house, but we have the greater reason to hope that he will when we are in communion with his saints. What what is Spurgeon saying? You have a better chance of meeting with God and having him move in your life if you are gathering with God's people, because here is the presence of the Lord, because the concentratedness of the saints, think about it, if we all have the Holy Spirit in us, because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, when there's more of us together, what does that mean? In some weird way, more of God. Now, I know you can't pour God into a measuring cup and be like, ooh, we got four ounces of God in here. I know that's not exactly what I mean. It's mysterious and dimensional, but it has to be true because Jesus even said, where two or three are gathered in my name, what? There I am in the midst. Now, I understand that's a church discipline text, but it's still true, right? Regardless if the context is church discipline or not, that's what he said. If two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. All right. Here's a question that was asked by you. How should I think about daily Bible reading? Okay? You should think about it as a means of sustaining grace. That's how you should think about it. Okay? I have three things and a subpoint under three. We should not think of daily Bible reading like law that merits salvation or right standing with God. God loves and accepts us because of Jesus, not because of how good we are at keeping the record of Bible reading. Okay, so we should not think of Bible reading like law that determines whether or not God is pleased with me, whether he accepts me, whether he loves me. It's like, God, I got a 30-day track record going here. And he's like, my love is at 90%. Okay, and if you can just get to 60, it might grow to 91 No, God loves us in Christ and his love is full. You can't have God love you any more than he does right now. That is the good news of being in Jesus because he loves the son with all his love and we are in the son. However, we should think of daily Bible reading as a means of learning who God is, what God is like, what God expects of us, what God expects of his creation, what man is, what man is like, what does man owe God, what is right and wrong, how should we live, etc. Okay, you need to read the Bible. Why? Number three, because when you read the Bible, slowly and imperceptibly, you are developing what's called a biblical worldview. What is a biblical worldview? Think of it as scriptural sunglasses. We all wear sunglasses in the summer, and think of the Bible as your glasses, and you are looking through the glasses, and you are perceiving the world through the lens of the Bible. Think about it as a filter. Okay, there's young people in the room, so you know what Snapchat is, you know what Instagram is. You click on that filter, and you can make yourself look like Brad Pitt, even though you're not, okay? You make yourself look like Come on, Miracle Who? Jada Pinkett, maybe? No? All right. The idea is, listen, the Bible is the filter by which we should see the world. It actually doesn't distort the real image. It makes the real image come into better focus. So it's actually the opposite of a filter that distorts reality and improves it. The opposite is true. When we look through the Bible, it takes our distorted view and hones it in and sharpens it. Okay, now, listen. One pastor said it like this. Listen carefully. Especially as we near the next election cycle. Hey, listen up. We spend far more time listening to our favorite political news podcast 
or cable news shows or reading political commentary in the newspapers or online or in essays. We spend far more time doing that than we do reading the Bible. And so what happens? When we read our Bible, we read it through a political lens instead of reading our politics through a biblical lens. That happens. You do that. Or if, if you're not, hey, politics, I'm apolitical. Not me. Okay, what about your shows? Okay, what about your, your, your favorite streaming platforms? Okay, like your Netflix and your Hulu and your, your Amazon Prime. If you're spending, you know, 40 hours a week on them and not even 30 minutes in your Bible, you don't think that's going to affect the way you see the world? If you listen to very sensual music and you're like, I just can't beat the lust temptation. Okay. One plus one equals, it's not magic. It's really not, okay? But what we don't like is, hey, don't tell me what to do. What are you telling me? I can't watch that or I can't listen to that or I shouldn't go there or I shouldn't stare for two. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm telling you. You shouldn't do that. Why? Why? It's not me. Listen, that is wisdom that God has set before you, okay? And I'm just making it very plain and being a bit sarcastic for humor, okay? Romans 12.2 would say it like this, okay? Here's some Bible. Do not be conformed to this world, okay? The world is anything anti-God. It's, it's the culture minus Jesus. And the conformed is pressed into its image, okay? The, the devil and the world would love you to look just like them. They, they don't want you smelling like Jesus even a little bit. They don't want you living out even three verses of the Bible, okay? And so when you're living out books and chapters or maybe the whole New Testament, you look very different. You are not conformed to this world any longer, okay? And you will stand out, and that's on purpose, okay? Do not be conformed to this world, but what? Be transformed, be changed, be metamorphosized. By what? By the renewing of your mind. Okay, how does our mind get renewed? By you studying the Scriptures, memorizing the Scriptures, listening to the Scriptures accurately taught, getting good books that unpack the Scriptures, and filling your mind with that. Listen, more than you fill it with other stuff. And I understand how hard that is in the culture we live in. And I also understand, like when you're reading about the Amalekites and the Amorites, and you're like, those people don't even exist no more. What do they have to do with me? And yet, the election cycle is like, look, this matters, flat taxes, and, and et cetera. Okay? But friends, God would put much value on your understanding His Word and then learning slowly with wisdom how to apply it to the news and to the movies and to the media and to the podcast and to the things you're hearing. And this is what will happen. This is what will happen. As you grow, all of you are hearing me from the point at sanctification at which you're at. I understand that. In other words, all of us are hearing me differently right now, okay? All of you, that's kind of amazing to me. But I'm speaking to you at the point in which you're at. As you grow, you will hear things and immediately the Holy Spirit will be like, that's wrong, that's anti-Scripture. And then as you grow more, you'll be like Galatians 5.16, Romans 12.2. You know, you, you'll, Scripture will come to mind as you hear the lies of the enemy from wherever they come from. But when you're newer or you're unbiblical in your thinking, you're just blown around by every new wind of teaching or every new fad or every new cultural thing, and you're not solid. And friends, God wants you solid. The image in Isaiah is of an oak tree, and oaks can grow hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and put roots deep into the ground. They can withstand tornadoes and hurricanes and huge storms, lightning storms. They can get hit by lightning, survive it, and keep growing. Shed a few acorns and be like, what? I'm here. Okay? And friends, that's what God wants for you. He wants you to become an oak of righteousness is the actual quote. You don't get there overnight, and you don't get there by streaming Netflix shows one after another after another after another, and you're like, oh, it's been six hours. I should probably refill my popcorn, right? It got silent. That means something. That really does mean something. I've learned enough to know that you're convicted. Look, you're pointing at each other. Just own it, man. Just own it. Just own it. I love you. I love you guys. Eddie. All right. I'm speaking to myself. Listen, everything I'm saying to you, I'm saying to me, okay? So I'm in this message with you. I'm swimming in it, okay? 
Now, here's another question, all right? And this is all going to tie together. What does it look like to actually live by faith? That was one of the questions that was asked, and it is a great question. Uh, He said, we we know we're not saved by works, and yet when we think of the Christian life, we think of fighting sin, trying to obey God better every day. Where does faith come into the everyday life? What does it look like in the day-to-day? What do we actually do and think about to make sure we're living by faith? This is a great question. Again, that was that one question with five tucked into it. Okay, here's a simple answer. Ready? Living by faith is taking God at His Word and acting on it. Let me say that again. Living by faith is taking God at His Word, but not just saying, oh yeah, I believe that. No, you act like you believe that. So James says in his letter, faith without what is dead? works. The works is the acting out of what you are reading in the Scripture. And if you're just reading it and you're like, man, that is dope. I love that. I'm going to memorize that. And you don't take it to action. That is dead faith. You're like, I believe it. And God's like, let me see you live it. And when you step to live it, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, God works in you both to will and to act according to His good pleasure. Here's where faith comes in, friends. It often is hard to notice and understand when God is moving through you. So most times when you're taking steps of faith, it feels like it's you doing you. But faith is taking God at His word that says, God is in you both to will and to act according to his good pleasure. And so, if you have a lust opportunity, both man and woman in here, you have a lust opportunity in front of you, you're like, ooh, the crossroads. Am I, am I going to look left? Am I going to look right? Am I going to walk left? Am I going to walk right? If you choose to do the right thing and gouge out your eye and chop off your hand, the Holy Spirit will move in you to empower you. But if you say, nope, I'm just going to give into it, the Holy Spirit is going to take a back seat and the flesh wins. Galatians 5, 16 and 17. But that moment you say, I'm going to walk by faith, by trusting that God is going to move through me and enable me to live out what the Word says. Okay, now, now the cutting off of the hand and the gouging out of the eye is metaphoric. It's hyperbole. But that means take some drastic steps. Maybe you need to walk out of the party. Maybe you need to shut the TV off. Maybe you need to check the parental guide on IMDb before you watch the movie. You're like, man, that's going to take an extra minute. Yeah, do it. And if it says nudity, don't watch it. You're like, that's hard. It's not as hard as taking your eyeball out with a spoon. Oh, and it got quiet again. That means something. So, so listen, I'm serious, guys. Jesus wants you to take his word serious. If you've lusted after someone, you've committed adultery in your heart, and God takes that very serious. Okay, and I love you enough to tell you that. And so, you should grow from where you're at. If this is you tonight, you know where to start. Start there. I need to go to war with my lust. And I need to take real action steps that are practical to keep me from offending God in that way. Amen? Amen. All right, good. Some of you are saying, can we move on to something else, please? (laughs) I love you guys. All right. So, here is, here's Matthew 7. So, this is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and He says this, judge not, lest you be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I'm going to stop for those two verses. Now, listen, We all love Tupac in here. We've heard, only God can judge me, and we would say yes and amen. Okay, Tupac, you're right. Only God can judge you. But some of us have picked up unbiblical notions from the culture that says something like this. It is wrong for you, Christian, to tell other people that they are wrong. You can't judge anybody. Hey, didn't Jesus say something about not judging someone? And here you are, self-righteous Christian, judging everyone. Now, That sounds, on the face of the argument, pretty plausible, but listen to this. By that person saying to you, you're wrong and you shouldn't do that, they are judging you and doing the very thing they're telling you you shouldn't be doing. You see that? 
It's wrong for you to judge people. Oh, you judging me? Oh, yeah, I guess I am. It doesn't work. And so what Jesus here is saying is not that we should never make moral judgments. What he's saying is that we should judge unself-righteously. As if you are the high king of holiness or the high queen of holiness looking down on everyone else. Everyone else needs to change, but you don't. How do you know that, Chris? Well, the rest of the passage. Look at verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye or sister's eye? Why do you see that little tiny thing in their eye, but you don't notice the log that's in your own eye? Now, friends, this is a hard one, right? Because we judge people all the time. We scroll and we judge. We scroll and we judge. We scroll. We, We can't help but judge. But Jesus is like, no. No. Why are you doing that? And here's what he says. Here's the solution. You ready? The solution is, hey, why don't you notice the massive sin in your own life? The big log that when you move, it moves with you. Before you try to do surgery on that little piece of sawdust in someone else's eye. Now imagine trying to do that, right? So you got a two by four sticking out of your eye and you're gonna try to help someone get the the little sawdust out of their eye. With a tweezer, you're gonna be knocking them in the head with your two by four. So the idea here is repent, pull the two by four out of your eye, and then here's what Jesus says, look. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So listen, he did say we should actually try to take specks out of other people's eye, didn't he? But what do we need to do first? Yeah, stop being so self-righteous. Repent, 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 and then try to help someone else. What we do is we're like, hey, there's nothing to see here but you, man. You got some issues. Friends, you have enough sin in you to occupy you for the rest of your life. Yet, we feel like we're the sin police, don't we? And we judge everyone else in some sense to make us feel better about ourselves. That's one motive, right? So, so here's what I want to encourage you, okay? What is it to live by faith? That was the question. The question is a great question, and here it is. Take Jesus at his word and start pulling the logs out of your eye. Start taking action. That would be faith working. Faith working would, you, would be you looking at your own life, seeing your sin, and guess what? How many of you have ever tried to change somebody else? Come on, let me see. I've tried. Did it work? No, it didn't work. How many of you have tried to change yourself? How'd that go? That went awesome too, right? Friends, we can barely change ourselves, yet we think we're going to change and sanctify and transform other people? No, you're not. If you can't even change yourself, how in the world are you going to change other people? Stop it. You say, this is very anti-gospel. No, it's not. No, it's not. Here's why. Because the Holy Spirit moves on you to save you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for His glory alone. Why? Because the Scripture alone says this. But after you are saved, God is not done with you. He wants you to now take steps of faith or acts of obedience, and the promise is as you do that, He will come in and work in you and through you to do that. Therefore, it's not really you. It's the Spirit of God through you doing the work. Otherwise, you'd be able to take credit. You'd be brushing your shoulders off. You'd be like, I'm the stuff. I'm the Christian stuff. But no, you're not. The Holy Spirit will move through you, and He will enable you to repent, to change, and to take further steps of growth. Then who gets the glory? God. See how that works? It's not law. That's gospel. God gets the glory, God does the work, yet here's the part of faith. The part of faith is this, you need to take action. We often feel like if we could just lay down and take a nap, we would grow and wake up more godly. It doesn't work like that. You need to take action and God will act through your acting. Now, I have a few more texts and we'll be done. Here's Romans 8, 12, and 13. So then, brothers, brothers and sisters, again, we are debtors, so we're in debt. Not to the flesh, that's the sinful part of you, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Now, I I take that both uh, 
really, like you're going to die eventually because of sin, the wages of sin is death, but practically, friends, how many of you have seen the death of relationships, the death of joy, the death of opportunities, the death of friendships, the death, death, death of good things because of your sin? That's what it's saying here. You live according to the flesh, and you're going to experience all manner of death. God wants life for you, not death. And he tells you what to do. And friends, he then promises, if you take actions according to my instruction, I will work in you and through you. That's the good news. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, notice by the Spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. If we will, as Christians, commit to pleading with God to change and transform us, to kill our sin, and then we take actions to kill our sin, God will give life. That's the promise. Now, it takes one thing for you to believe that. That is a kind of faith. I believe that. But then there's a whole other level of faith that says, I'm going to act on that. I'm going to act on that. And when God sees you acting on His Word, that's, that's living faith. That's not dead faith. Faith without works is dead. And so real faith works. Real faith acts. Real faith takes steps of action. Trusting God to work in you both to will and to do. Here's another one, Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, gospel, verse 20, gospel, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, walking out the Christian faith. But what came first? Gospel. So so this is an important point. God does not want us to live in such a way to try to earn his favor, earn his grace, earn salvation. No, look what comes first. The God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. That's the cross. That's the, the life, death, burial, and resurrection. After you have come to Christ by that means, then what? Verse 21. Then... He will equip you with everything good that you may do, not know. Now, you do have to know in order to do, but notice it doesn't say just know. A lot of us are satisfied to know how many Bible verses you got stored in your head. Like, oh, I know that. You doing it? Oh, yeah, 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 I know that. How's it going? You walking it out? Not know His will, do His will, do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, and I would say by the person of the Holy Spirit, to whom be glory forever and ever, amen. Do you see this repeated theme? You take action and God works in you and you will glorify Him. You will honor Him with your life. Now, this is a long one. And this is the last one, I promise, okay? We good? Put a thumb up if you're good. All right, that's 90% of you. The other 10? It's a democracy, baby. I'm sorry. It's democracy. All right, here we go. Colossians 3, 1 to 10, especially verse 5. Now watch this. If then you have been raised with Christ, gospel, okay? If you're raised with Christ, that means you're in Him. You have been resurrected from your spiritual death. You are alive in Jesus. That's gospel, okay? Notice how it starts with gospel. Then seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated, seated at the right hand of God. So that that just means, that's a very uh, abstract way of saying the things that please God, the things that honor God. Okay? Set your minds. Okay, we often are like, what does that mean to set our mind? How many of you heard of a mindset? That's it, that's it. Set your minds on mindset. Okay, what is your mindset? Okay, set your minds on things that are above, not on the things of the earth. Now, he's going to define that in a second, okay? He's not talking about trees and rivers and oceans and fish and especially fried fish, okay? For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Now watch. Remember here, things of earth, not on the things of earth. Look at verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So now he's going to define what he meant earlier, okay? Now look at it. Sexual immorality, impurity, Passion that has to do with with, uh, bodily passion that would dishonor God. Evil desire, covetousness, 
which is idolatry. Now, I, I am a, a superhero movie kind of junkie. Uh, it is my one guilty pleasure. Uh, I even like the DC movies, and I know that disturbs some of you. And I have seen both Shazam movies, and that disturbs even more of you. How many, let's be honest, confession time, how many of you seen the first Shazam movie? Oh, more than you than I thought. Okay. So remember, he has to fight the seven deadly sins. You remember that? And the last of the seven deadly sins that was hiding. You remember? What was it? It was envy. Envy was hiding. And that was the last villain that he had to fight because it was hiding. Envy is equivalent to covetousness. Envy, listen, envy and covetousness looks at what other people have and you're upset at them because you don't have what they have. It looks at someone else's spouse and wishes, why can't my spouse be like that? It looks at someone else's life and imagines their life is far better than mine. It looks at someone else's anything and is dissatisfied with one's own, and that is a sin against God. In fact, did you know it's the 10th commandment? Do not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's animals, your neighbor's fill in the blank. And friends, our culture is set up for covet fest, isn't it? And, and envy is in the air we breathe. And we envy, and we don't even know it. That's why it's hidden. I think that movie, that was a great move that they did by hiding envy because it is the sin that hides. And we make all kinds of excuses. Oh, it's not envy. I'm not coveting. And it's killing you. It's making you dissatisfied with the gifts and the life that God has given you, and you're imagining some kind of fantasy life that doesn't even exist, and you're dissatisfied with your own life. And in some sense, you are saying this to God, and I'm saying this to myself. God, you've given them a good life, and you've given me a terrible life. And friends, if that's your attitude towards God, how's your relationship going with Him? Seriously. So, so here, look what it's called, covetousness, which is idolatry, meaning the worship of false gods. No, no, oh, that's, that's Old Testament, man. That's, there's no more Moloch gods. There's no more Baal worship. No, but we worship bank account. We worship followers on social media. We worship praise of man. We worship relationships that others seemingly have that are better than our own. We we worship many things, and God says, that is competing with me. Now, listen, I, I could leave you here and just say, stop coveting, okay? But I won't. Here's what I'll say. God wants to free you from this sin so that you might have the joy of the Lord. Coveting and envying destroys your joy, friends. And it is the joy of the Lord that is our strength, and so if you feel weak, if you feel beaten down, if you feel tired, or if you're like, I can't do this Christian life, friends, check the hidden envy. Find it. Kill it. And watch God restore your joy. So when your car gets a flat tire, which mine just did, you don't look at someone else with four tires and go, God, you know, <laughs> fist to the heavens. Now that's a stupid example, but we do these types of things, right? No one else's tire goes flat, just mine. No, I'm serious. Like, like we do that, right? We, we do this in, in all manner of ways, right? You drop your phone, it lands right on that rock, and the screen cracks, and you're like, no one else's phone cracks, just mine, you know? And this is what envy and coveting does. It, it, it imagines that you have it so bad, and everyone else has it so good. Meanwhile, the truth is, everyone's got it bad. <laughs> but in Christ, friends, there's joy even in the suffering. Doesn't Paul say sorrowful yet always? That's, that's, that's possible. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Okay, and this is not a message about suffering. There are some of those questions. We'll, we'll deal with that in another sermon. All right. Last question, and we're done. And, and kids, kids, you're doing great. Your parents all deserve to give you at least $10, maybe 20 Just kidding. You get no money from me, kids. You're doing a great job, though, seriously. You all, you all if your parents will let you, can have dessert when family meal is over. Is that cool? Landon's like, oh, man, seriously? I thought I was going to get 10 bucks. Sorry, bro. You know what? Kids, 
Eddie will give you all $10 if you go see him after worship gathering. <laughs> all right, here it is. Last, look, guys, last one, last one. Here's the last question. How does one believed to be a Christian release themselves from a dark past or sinful impurity that they were too young to know any better as a child, but as they matured, it still plagues them into adulthood? This is a great question. And here's the answer. You must remind yourself of who you are in Jesus and what that means for your past and your present. Okay? Let me say that again. You must continually remind yourself of who you are in Jesus and what that means to both your past and your present. Here's two verses. Ready? Paul says to the Galatians, he, he's, he's giving his psychology, how he thinks about himself, and he says, I have been crucified with Christ. That is Paul's past self, the one that hunted Christians, threw them in jail, executed them, was hating Jesus, blaspheming. He said, that Paul has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I, that past Paul who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. But now look, and the life I now live, this is the new Paul, I live, I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so what does that look like practically? Friends, I am plagued often by my past. I have a memory. Every time I go back to my old neighborhood to visit my parents, I'm flooded with terrible things I did and said and sins I've committed against others and myself and God ultimately. And you know what I do? I literally say this to myself. That Chris is dead. That Chris is buried. This Chris alive now is new. I literally say that to myself. That old Chris is dead. And I don't have to walk in the shame and guilt of that old person. Is that not what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation or creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And friends, that, now, now you need to do that often and regularly until it's real to you. It will become real to you. At first, it'll feel like a mind game, but this is the Word of God, and as you speak it to yourself and remind yourself of it, the Holy Spirit does amazing, mysterious, transforming work on your inner thinking, and He changes the way you think about yourself in the past. That person is dead. This person is alive in Jesus, and I am new. I no longer need to walk in the shame and guilt and fear of that old person because he's in the grave, she's in the grave. And you repeat that to yourself over and over again. All right, we're done. One more question was asked, and I think you're out there. I don't know who you are, but I think you're out there. Here's what you asked. How can you resist temptation that's developed into a habit? How, how do you resist temptation that has developed into a habit? Here's, here's the answer. You take action, listen, short answer. You take action on what you know to be right, and you do that over and over and over and over again until what? A new habit is formed. Now listen, it's gonna be awkward at first. How many of you have started a new job in a large building or a large city? Right, and you're like, I don't know which hallway is right. Was that the right elevator? Or, or, or you enter a new city and you're like, is it this the right left? And, right, and it feels awkward, but then all of a sudden, it's like you forget that you didn't know where to go. You just, you make the right turns and you understand the building. And the same way goes often in the Christian life. You're brand new in Christianity and you're like, I don't know what is what. I don't know what theology is what. I don't know what Bible verses, that Old Testament, New Testament. And all of a sudden, as you continue in it, things start to fit into place, right? And you get acclimated and oriented. Friends, that is the real deal right there. How do you get out of an old sinful habit? You develop a new godly habit. How do I do that? You resist the old one and you continuously do the new one over and over and over, knowing that it will feel awkward at first, just like being in a new hospital. Right? I've, I've visited too many hospitals to name because I'm a pastor and because my wife's had surgery and I've had surgery and the kids have been 
accident prone since they were born, right? And you're like, is it the purple elevator or the yellow elevator or the silver one or the red one? Why is there so many colors in this stupid hospital, right? And you're like, what floor is what? Stephanie's laughing, right? Do you know children's by now? Mostly. It's, it's, like a, it's like 10 city blocks, right? It's a city unto itself. You go in there for the first time, you're mad confused. But if you're Stephanie, you've been there now for five years and you can know what elevator's what at least, right? Okay, so that's the idea. You do it until it's not awkward anymore. And before you know it, you're looking back at yourself and you're like, huh, I haven't done it in a month. Huh, I haven't done it in two months. It's been a year. And you've developed a new habit. And you know who was working in you all that time? God. And you were living by faith, trusting that he would work in you eventually, and you took action. Amen? All right. And so let us remember that without Jesus in our place, none of this matters. You could try to live as godly as you want and try to honor him with your life as much as you want, and it will get you no credit with him. God receives us only on one basis, and that is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. His perfect life in your place, his perfect substitutionary death in your place, and his glorious resurrection. And friends, that's what we celebrate as the centerpiece of our faith. And so we're gonna celebrate that right now by taking communion together. If you're a Christian, we would love for you to take communion with us tonight. Remember the Lord's death and proclaim it until he comes. If you're not a Christian tonight, we would just ask you, maybe don't take communion tonight because it is a symbol of the reality of having the Lord Jesus in our place. Now, if what I've said tonight pricks you and you're wanting to maybe become a Christian and have the Lord Jesus, you could take communion with us. Maybe as an act of faith for the first time, take communion and celebrate what Jesus has done for you.